Podglomerate original. Hey, Trailweight listeners. Before we start today's episode, I wanted to quickly tell you about another podcast, The Carbon Copy. Climate change can often feel like a far-off problem or tend to be siloed as a scientific story. But everything is a climate story. And that's where The Carbon Copy comes in. Hosted by climate reporter Stephen Lacey, The Carbon Copy covers climate change by connecting it to the significant cultural, economic, business, and tech trends that shape the world around us. Produced by Postscript Media and Canary Media, The Carbon Copy informs, enlightens, and sparks curiosity about how a changing climate affects our lives. From Russia's war on Ukraine to the housing crisis to decisions handed down from the Supreme Court, The Carbon Copy explores how climate change and the energy transition connect to today's biggest stories. To hear more, follow and subscribe to The Carbon Copy on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. Hey, podcast listeners. Are you planning holiday travel, dreaming of your next big adventure, or finally satisfying your wanderlust? If so, the next step might just be checking out Expedia's podcast, Out Travel the System. More than travel hacks, Out Travel the System breaks down travel-related stereotypes and showcases just how much there is to see and experience in the world. You'll hear from expert guests like Condé Nast's former creative director, Yolanda Edwards, and industry pioneer, Jessica Nabongo, who is the first black woman to visit all the countries in the world. However, and wherever you travel, follow Out Travel the System everywhere you listen to podcasts. Could you just um, introduce yourself? Uh, hi, I'm uh, uh, Dan Selmy. I was a professor of law at Loyola Law School, Loyola Marymount University in Los Angeles. I'm now professor of law emeritus. Um, well, yeah, let's dive into this. I never imagined this podcast would be so full of legal speak and land policy talk. But I've learned that these are some of the ways we as a nation have officially tried to answer the question of what it means to be a responsible outdoors person. And while they may have their pros and cons, it's important to look back at some of the history and figure out how we got here. And so we'll talk with Professor Selmy in a moment. But first, I'm Andrew Stephen, and this is Trailweight, a podcast about hiking outdoors and the lessons learned along the way. In 1964, on opening night of Mary Poppins, Walter Elias Disney had reached the pinnacle of his career. This is a clip from the 2001 documentary, Walt Disney, The Man Behind the Myth. I tried to convince her I was uh, capable of making a, a picture with uh, live actors as well as cartoons. I didn't know what she thought of Who was Walt Disney? Even those who worked with him for years often struggled to define the man. Before I started this podcast, before I had ever been to the Mineral King Valley high up in the Sierra Nevada mountains, and before I started to examine my impact on the outdoors, I only thought of Walt Disney as an animated filmmaker and the theme park innovator. 
I never knew he considered himself an environmentalist. I never knew he was a member of the Sierra Club. And I never knew his motivation for making nature films came from his desire to promote and protect the natural world. Disney, to me, was just a creative and hugely successful entrepreneur. But the Disney I've learned about making this podcast is a much more complicated person. This is, of course, somewhat obvious. Most of us, unfortunately, see public figures as something not quite human. We only know one side of the person, the side they share with their audience. But Walt Disney was not only a public figure, he was also very much a man of his time. And as we've talked about throughout the series, times change. Ideas change, views change. I mean, even Disneyland, led by Disney himself, reminded the world that Disneyland would never be finished, continually growing and evolving, hopefully for the better. And again, it's an obvious truth that bears repeating. Trying and failing, learning and growing, is what it really is all about. out of business. In July of 1923, Walt sold his movie camera. He would go where all movie makers go. He would head for Hollywood. It was a big day, the day I, I, I got on that Santa Fe Limited, this California Limited, free and happy, you know, but I'd failed. And I think, it's, I think it's important to have a good hard failure when you're young. I came to Hollywood, there was just one thing I wanted to do. I wanted to get into the motion picture business. I wanted to be a director. That was my ambition, my goal, be a director. Walt moved in with his uncle, Robert Disney. He then set out to knock on the door of every studio in town. But they all turned him down. That was my, always my feeling, get in, not choose. But get in, be a part of it, and then move up. What the hell? Sweep the floor. I don't care. Get it? At first, Walt avoided animation. He believed he was too late to compete with the big studios in New York. But when no opportunities opened up, he returned to animation. Uncle Robert Disney was a gruff, cigar-chopping fellow who could be persuaded to help when Walt needed him. He had a pleasant house on Kingswell Avenue, and allowed Walt to turn his garage into a studio. I'm driving uh, just a few blocks from my place right now on a street called Kingswell, and if you've ever been to uh, California Adventure at Disneyland, you might recognize the name Kingswell. It's on some of the shops on there. Buena Vista Street, Main Street area, but Kingswell is actually the site of one of Walt Disney's first studios he opened in Los Angeles. Just down the street here is his uncle's house where he lived for a while. Um, there's, there's actually a, a, a plant store here that I sometimes go to. Yeah, and it's just one of those things where it's it's just interesting because for so much of my life, Disney has been this huge studio. You know, they have a big studio complex just over the hill here, and 
it's always uh, interesting to think about, oh yeah, at one time they were just in a garage or in an attic or in a little storefront here when uh, some of the roads that I'm, I'm driving on were just dirt. And uh, it's, it's, it's interesting to remember that Disney wasn't always this huge corporation, but it was a person. Just a little bit further here on St. George Street in Los Feliz. I'm passing Walt and Roy Disney's uh, matching houses. They, they live next to each other. All right, I just am parking in a uh, Gelson's parking lot. Um, there's a Starbucks here, but apparently there's a plaque because once Walt moved out of the little storefront, they opened up a studio where this parking lot now is. Let me see if I can go find it. Just one week before, the two brothers made the down payment on a new lot on Hyperion Avenue. They plan to build a brand new studio to continue producing the Alice series. Uh, across the street from this parking lot is the Trader Joe's that I shop at regularly. My neighborhood Trader Joe's. Okay, I found the sign. It says, Point of Historical Interest, site of Walt Disney's original animation studio in Los Angeles. 2719 Hyperion Avenue, 1926 to 1940. Walked right past it. This episode is brought to you by our sponsor, BetterHelp. When learning how to backpack, one of my first purchases was a small, portable butane stove. And the first thing I saw when I opened the box was a small folded up set of instructions. After a quick read, I turned it on and it worked without a problem. Unfortunately, not everything comes with a set of instructions. And life is one of those things without a user manual. And most of it isn't problem free. So when life's not working, it's normal to feel stuck, lost, and unsure of how to proceed. We may not have an instruction booklet for life, but thankfully there are people trained to help us navigate a career change, work through relationship issues, and help us approach feelings of stress, anger, or anxiety. I've personally found therapy to be beneficial in talking through complex issues, processing pain, learning productive skills, and so much more. And BetterHelp has connected more than 3 million people with the help they need. If you're thinking of giving therapy a try or are having trouble finding the right help, BetterHelp is a great option. It's convenient, accessible, and affordable. And, as the world's largest therapy service, BetterHelp has matched 3 million people with professionally licensed and vetted therapists, all available 100% online. Plus, it's affordable. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to match with a therapist. You can easily switch to a new therapist anytime if things aren't clicking. It couldn't be simpler. No waiting rooms. No traffic. No endless searching for the right therapist. Learn more and save 10% off your first month at BetterHelp.com wait. That's better. H-E-L-P dot slash W-E-I-G-H-T. If you're looking for another podcast to listen to, check out Vanishing Postcards. Hosted by Evan Stern, Vanishing Postcards is all about being outside, on the open road, 
and seeing new places. In the latest season, Vanishing Postcards invites listeners to drive cross-country on Route 66 and experience everything from a dance in Tulsa to an eating contest in the Texas Panhandle to a morning on the Santa Monica Pier. Vanishing Postcards explores how this iconic road's past, present, and future are revealed through the stories of the people and places on Route 66 today. If you're looking for an episode to try, check out Postcards from the Mother Road, The Roots of Route 66, and hear all about how the legend of Route 66, which spans almost 7,000 miles, came to be. You can join their road trip by following Vanishing Postcards wherever you get your podcasts. And then uh, less than a block away, just down the street here, there's a set of bungalow apartments built during the sort of storybook craze and architecture that was going on in the 30s. And um, some say that they helped inspire the look of Snow White's uh, buildings, cabins, cottages. Uh, Not to mention that Walt Disney had a, a favorite bar and restaurant, the Tom O'Shanter that's not too far away as well that had a similar storybook look. So maybe it inspired Snow White. I don't know. For me, Walt Disney has always been a brand more than a person. I guess it's easier to come to that conclusion when you name your company after yourself. But quote-unquote Disney has always felt more like a word than a name, if that makes sense. It can be hard to remember that before they were huge companies... They were people trying to make a go at it, sometimes pushing themselves to the break. I did. I, in 1931, I had a hell of a breakdown. I went all to pieces. It was just that, and I, I cracked up. I, I just got very irritable. I got to a point that I couldn't talk on the telephone. I'd begin to uh, cry. I had to go away. This is where we first picked up Disney's story earlier in the season. In 1931, Walt Disney's doctor suggested he get outside, maybe pick up a new hobby or sport. And so, Walt and his family took a trip to Yosemite, where he fell in love with winter sports. Disney was taken by skiing and eventually decided he needed to create his own version of a ski resort, one inspired by Disneyland that, in his mind, balanced preserving nature recreation, and accessibility. In the 1960s, Walt Disney tried out some of his ideas for his yet-to-be-open ski park at the Winter Olympics, before eventually finding and settling on developing the Mineral King Valley of Sequoia National Forest. Walt's interest in such a resort was sparked by his role as the master in charge of pageantry during the 1960 Winter Olympics. And in September of 1966, Walt joined Governor Edmund G. Brown for a press conference on the project. At first, many were excited, but as logistics dragged development on, more information came to light about the environmental impact the Disney plan would create. Plus, a growing number of views and understanding of conservation and environmentalism caused some to question Disney's Mineral King ski park. Perhaps confused, Disney wondered why the same people he considered himself a part of began to see his vision of wilderness recreation 
as a problem that needed to be fixed. After all, wasn't he getting people interested in the outdoors? Helping people experience the grandeur and wonder of nature? And getting visitors excited about these places so they would want to protect them for future generations? We hope that we can uh, develop it in such a way that the families can come up here and have access to this great, uh, wonderful wilderness area. Journalists who attended the event were struck by Walt's appearance. Walt looked gaunt and drawn, but no one suspected there was something far more serious ahead. On December 15, 1966, almost three months to the date after Disney's press conference announcing Mineral King, Walt Disney surprised the world with his unexpected death. But the Disney company pressed on. By 1969, after dealing with Walt Disney's passing and continued logistical delays, the Sierra Club, which once supported the Mineral King Ski Resort, filed a federal suit to stop Disney's project. They feared Disney's presence, the resort, and increased traffic would negatively impact the environment. And as a technicality, they even argued that a new road, which would have to be built, would pass through Sequoia National Park which would be a legal construction antithetical to the national park policies. The Sierra Club argued that going forward with the resort was handing way too much control of the national forest land to Disney. I heard about it first when I was in law school. Here's environmental law professor Daniel P. Selby. The case came down and we read it in a class. I've always gone to the parks in California and done hiking and Mineral King sounded fascinating. Soon... More voices joined the Sierra Club, and opposition grew. Many pointed to the fact that the area of Sequoia National Forest was a national game refuge, and argued that the development of a resort would dramatically change the environment and go against the National Game Refuge's legal purpose. After uh, school that year, we went down and did, went hiking there and realized what a gorgeous place it was. Even though the Sierra Club had favored a Mineral King recreational development as recently as 1965, now their mission had changed. Soon, bumper stickers started to appear with the message, Keep Mineral King Natural. And at that point, what was going to happen to it was not clear. Don Harris, one of the Sierra Club legal defense members, tells the story of how it all started. In a lawsuit that opened up the legal system to environmental organizations and sparked the creation of the organization that would later become Earth Justice. He writes in an article on EarthJustice.com The resort was totally out of scale, dozens of lifts, plus hotels, restaurants, parking lots, and all the trimmings in a small, fragile, high altitude valley renowned for its avalanches. The Sierra Club objected, other outdoor groups objected. They wrote letters to politicians, they published articles in newspapers and magazines. But when the Sierra Club decided to oppose the Disney Ski Resort, it was bucking very long odds. He continues, We prevailed upon a talented San Francisco lawyer named Lee Selna, who agreed to take the case at a sharply reduced rate. The Sierra Club board, after sober consideration, decided to take the plunge. Selna wrote that because the Sierra Club existed partially to protect places like Mineral King, it should have the right to bring a case. And they brought the case on behalf of 
the basin, the valley itself, or like, I, I guess to a lay person, the concept of standing and sort of how typically cases are brought where it, and, and, and from my understanding, it's like a person, like some something would have to be harming a person that they would then be suing a company organization, et cetera. But this case was a little different. Well, the, the concept of, of standing, I mean, the, the, if you think of, it, the, of the, ter- the term, the word itself, standing, it, it's simply who can bring the suit. And the answer is that not everybody can sue over everything. There have to be some limits on that. And, and that's what this case was about. So a third example would be like, can't sue McDonald's because the coffee's too hot if I wasn't actually burned by the coffee. Uh, that's absolutely true. You would, you'd have no legal action against them. The peculiarity here, of course, is we're talking about public lands. And so who are we going to allow to sue over a development on public land as opposed to, for example, a private injury if you were harmed by McDonald's? That was becoming the big issue in the late 60s because so much of the environmental injuries that were occurring were on public property. And so this was almost a, uh, you know, the comparison I've seen is Dr. Seuss's The Lorax, sort of who will speak for the trees. Hey! Oh! Oh! Did you chop down this tree? And who are you? Wait, wait, I'm, I'm the Lorax! Guardian of the forest! I speak for the trees! So, yeah, it's about who will speak for the trees. Um, what do they have to show to be allowed to speak? I mean, there's no question the Sierra Club wanted to speak for, for the Valley. What do you have to show to be able to do that? And I think you mentioned earlier that they brought suit on behalf of the Valley. I mean, actually, they brought the suit on behalf of the Sierra Club. And their, their overall argument was, we have been intimately involved with Mineral King for most of the century. And so we are a, an organization that is appropriate to be able to sue and claim that something illegal is going on there. That was their overall argument. Making a tactical decision, the government asked the Court of Appeals to decide if the Sierra Club actually had standing. Lawyers submitted briefs, made statements and arguments, and eventually the court decided that no, the Sierra Club did not have the standing to argue the case, regardless of its merits. And so, the Sierra Club asked the Supreme Court to look into the case. So how did this affect environmental law? It's the case that opened the courthouse doors because the the court had previously, the Supreme Court had previously said that you could have an environmental injury and that that could be the kind of injury that would allow someone to bring suit, but it hadn't answered what you had to show to bring that suit. And this court said you had to show injury in fact, you had to show that somehow the development that was being proposed injured either your organization, but more likely your members somehow. If somebody's discharging into a body of water pollutants, you know, did your members use that body of water? Will they be harmed by that? So, so that became the, the use concept became the linchpin. On January 1st, 1970, 
as the litigation was winding its way through the federal court system, President Richard Nixon signed the National Environmental Policy Act, or NEPA, which now required federal agencies to study the environmental effects of proposed actions in much more detail than previous. That, uh, we were seeing a lot of federal decisions that just didn't make any sense at all. This is Bill Van Ness, one of the authors of NEPA and chief counsel on the U.S. Senate Committee of Interior and Insular Affairs from 1966 to 77. In Florida, we had the Everglades National Park, which was a big area, very popular area to visit. There was also a plan by the airline industry to build a super jet port in the Everglades, covering part of the Everglades National Park, because it was above water, it was flat, it was going to be cheap to do, and at that point in time, Florida was... Uh, great place to have a major international airport. Land was cheap. And at the same time, the state of Florida was trying to dry up a lot of the land around the Everglades, building dikes and canals because this was very valuable agricultural land. And it became clear, too, that there was no document covering what the objectives and desires each of these agencies were. They didn't talk to anybody, nobody had any ideas. So that's what kind of led to the idea for NEPA and the environmental impact statement and the need for consultation and the need to put whatever the project or effort an agency wanted to make, to put it into a document and have that document circulated to state, federal, local governments to give people an opportunity to comment on. Regardless of the pending court case, work could not begin in Mineral King until the Forest Service analyzed Disney's impact more closely. With a ticking clock, the Sierra Club had to persuade the Supreme Court to hear its case, knowing the court turns away at least 90% of the cases brought before it. Yet, they prevailed. Mr. Zona, you may proceed. Mr. Chief Justice Berger, and may it please the court, the Sierra Club brought this proceeding to establish that their plans to authorize a huge private recreational development at Mineral King and for a state highway across Sequoia National Park to reach that development. Special thanks to Professor Daniel P. Selmy. His book, Dawn at Mineral King Valley, is available wherever books are sold. Trailweight is produced and written by Andrew Stephen. Our story producer is Monty Montepar. Executive produced by Jeff Umbro and the Podglomerate. For more information, photos, and transcripts, visit trailweight.com. You can find additional podcasts, shows, and more at andrewstephen.com. Thanks for listening.
Podglomerate original.